570 WTBN Pinellas Park, 100.3 W262CP Bayonet Point. Online and portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. So, if Jesus wasn't promising the physical continuation or the doctrinal purity of all local churches, that in what sense did he mean that the power of death, the gates of Hades, will not prevail against the church? Watch this, because this is the key to understanding what he's talking about. This verse in Matthew chapter 16 puzzled me for a long time. When I read verse 18, which says in part, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, I could not figure out why Jesus would make it sound like the gates of Hades would be an offensive weapon. But that wasn't his meaning at all. Gates are not used to attack, they are used to confine, to keep people out or keep them in. Hi, I'm glad you're here for another Verse by Verse. Our leader for these daily Bible studies is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, and we've spent the past couple weeks looking into the nature of the church. Jesus first mentioned the church in Matthew 16, verses 16 through 18. On the surface, he didn't offer a lot of information. But as we dug deeper into the specific words Jesus chose and began exploring other scripture passages about the church, we found a lot of meat in there. I assure you, Pastor Steve does have an explanation for the meaning of the gates of Hades not prevailing upon the church. But before we get to that, let's consider the meaning of the gates of Hades itself and also look at some of the wrong explanations that have been offered concerning this short passage. Here's Pastor Steve. But all I want you to see is that Hades and hell are distinct in that passage. Now, follow me. Hades is the Greek New Testament equivalent of the Hebrew word sheol. You often see in the Old Testament, you go through it, you'll see the word sheol, and it's used to speak simply of the place of the dead. Here's the key. In time, words change as time moves on. In time, the word Sheol came to be regarded by the Jewish people as simply synonymous with death. That's an important thing to understand because that's the way it appears that Jesus is using the word Hades here. I said before more the place of the dead. Let me correct that. It's simply he's using it as death itself, synonymous with death. Therefore, when you put the word gates together with the word Hades, the imagery that Jesus portrayed is that of gates opening up and then confining someone to death, not allowing them to escape. In other words, the gates of Hades speaks of the power of death that prevents anyone from escaping. It is powerful, like gates that will keep you confined. That's the way death is. And that, by the way, is the most natural way that the Lord's Jewish disciples would have understood this expression. Because the words gates of death and similar expressions are used throughout the Old Testament to speak of death. For example, in Psalm 9.13, we read, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You will lift me up from the gates of death. The psalmist was simply saying, People hate me, they want to kill me, but I know that you will lift me up from the gates of death. You'll lift me from the power of death. 
That's how the disciples would have understood this. They're Jewish. This is their background. Jesus didn't say, I'm using gates in a different way. Gates of Hades, they would have understood it to speak of the power of death. We read also in Isaiah 38, verse 10, speaking of King Hezekiah, from the journals of King Hezekiah, we read this. King Hezekiah said, in the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. Hezekiah was moaning the fact that in midlife, God was going to take his life. He's using the expression, the gates of Sheol, to speak of the power of death, death itself. Remember, Sheol and Hades, same expression, same words, different language. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. And so the expression, the gates of Hades, simply speaks of death in the sense of death locking its gates to keep anyone from escaping. But that's not all. Notice exactly what Jesus said about these gates with reference to his church. Look at the verse again. He said, the gates of Hades will not overpower the church. They won't do it. You see, Jesus was teaching that the gates of Hades, those strong and powerful, are not strong enough to keep the church from escaping the clutches of death. In other words, the Lord was promising that his church will never ultimately die or be destroyed. He was saying that it is indestructible, it is invincible because it will never be overpowered by death. I think that's exactly what he was talking about. That is the essential meaning of this expression used by Jesus in speaking about the church. Death, he says, meaning the gates of Hades, will not prevail. Death will not prevail against my church. But the question that we need to ask and answer is this, in what sense is he referring? In what sense is this the case? How will death not prevail against the church? Well, before we see what the Lord had in mind, let me first tell you what he didn't have in mind. It's always helpful, I find, when you're dealing with some tough passages to eliminate certain views. Number one, this is not a promise concerning the longevity of a local church. Jesus was not saying that all local churches will live forever. It's not what he was saying here. There are many local churches that have died and they've ceased to exist. I know of churches like that in our own community over the years who their numbers have dwindled and finally the few people that remain just closed the doors and joined another church and sold the building to some other group. And there are places in the world today where once flourishing local churches existed, but they have since died out. For example, the New Testament church of Ephesus. We read about the Ephesians. We read much about them in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul founded this church. He actually stayed there for two years teaching the people. I can't think of anything greater than that. To sit under the Apostle Paul's ministry. Think what an incredible church this was, and Timothy was dispatched there to spend time with this church. The two letters called First and Second Timothy were written to him while he was at Ephesus. So they were letters for him as well as the church. Tradition says that the apostle John spent time at the church at Ephesus. So, so at one time they had great teaching. Could you imagine the apostle John, the apostle Paul, Timothy himself, and other great teachers were there? Yet, several years down the road, in Revelation 2.5, we read that Jesus said, unless the church at Ephesus repents over its sin, 
He was going to remove, he said, their lampstand, which is simply another way of saying, I'm going to turn the lights out. It's over. And it is. That happened. That once great church has ceased to exist long ago. To my knowledge, there is no church in that specific region of the world today that was known as Ephesus in the New Testament times. Another thing that the expression, the gates of Hades shall not overpower the church, doesn't mean is that all local churches, or I might add church denominations, would never lose their doctrinal purity and would continue always to be faithful to the word of God, never deviating from the word of God. We all need to understand that Jesus, when he said that death would not prevail against the church, he wasn't promising that all local churches would remain true to the Bible and continue to have born-again Christians as members. See, there are many local churches and certainly many mainline Protestant denominations that have apostatized, which simply means they've departed from the faith. They've turned away from the word of God. And because they no longer preach the gospel and their membership now consists primarily of people who have never been born again, they cannot and should not be considered Christ church, even though they may continue to have a Christian name attached to them and they may meet in a building that is designated, called the church. In reality, they're dead. Their message is dead. It's lifeless. It's not the gospel. And they, as a people, are lifeless and dead because they are still dead in their sins and trespasses. They've never been born again. So if Jesus wasn't promising the physical continuation or the doctrinal purity of all local churches, that in what sense did he mean that the power of death, the gates of Hades, will not prevail against the church? Watch this, because this is the key to understanding what he's talking about. The primary thought here is that those who make up the true church, and remember the church is not an organization, it's people, born-again Christians, though they will die, they will never be permanently imprisoned by death. Why? Because they will eventually rise from the grave. In other words, Christ's promise concerning the gates of Hades not overpowering the church is a promise that all of his people, the church, will experience the glorious resurrection of their physical bodies, meaning that when they are resurrected, they will be in his presence with a new body. See, here in Matthew 16, the Lord is telling the disciples that the church he's going to build will be of such a nature that believers will no longer need fear death because death will not have any power over them. And that is exactly, and follow me now, that is exactly what his disciples needed to hear because right after telling them about these truths concerning his church, Jesus immediately announced to them that he was going to die, but he'd be resurrected. Let me show you. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began, this is right after telling about the church, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, the Lord from that time on began to tell them that he's going to Jerusalem, he'll be killed, but he'll be raised up. 
But none of his disciples understood why he had to die, especially Peter, who had just declared him to be the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so you know what? In response to our Lord's words about his death, Peter gave him a hard time, a horrible time. He's rebuking the Lord, which is unbelievable that someone would do this, but Peter did it. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Here's what Jesus did. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. He called him Satan because he was acting like Satan. Satan wanted in the temptation to keep Jesus from the cross. Here, I'll give you a crown right now. And Peter's doing the same thing. Lord, you'll not go to the cross. You'll not die. And he doesn't understand the cross. He doesn't understand the necessity of Christ's death for the payment of sin. So he's rebuking the Lord and the Lord rebukes him. He says, get behind me, Satan. But a little bit later, note this, Peter not only understood the meaning and the necessity of Christ's death, but he understood quite clearly what Jesus had been saying about the gates of Hades or death not prevailing as a reference of the truth of the resurrection. And we know that's the case because of what he preached in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So let's turn there. Acts chapter 2. This is that famous sermon. This is the first sermon. The church has just been born on the day of Pentecost. Peter is preaching to thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem. He says to them, starting in verse 22, he was speaking before that, but For our purposes, we break in in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But note this, folks. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Then he quotes from David in the Psalms, speaking about the Holy One of Israel, who though in Hades, meaning he'd have death, his body would not uh, remain there. He says, notice in verse 31, speaking of David, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Note this, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. He's saying that though he has died, death has not confined him. He has not been overpowered by Hades. As you go back to Matthew 16, we understand that That's what Jesus was talking about. Death will not have power over him, but death also will not have power, he said, over the church. Notice that Jesus didn't only announce to his disciples his own upcoming death. He also went on to tell them that they needed to be willing to die for him too. Notice verses 24 and 25, Matthew 16. Then, meaning after he told them about his death. Then he said, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To take up one's cross is not to put jewelry around you with a cross. 
To take up one's cross is not to say, I'm having a rough day. This is a difficulty in my life. To take up one's cross means you take up the wooden beams and you carry those wooden beams to your own place of crucifixion. Just what the Romans did with Jesus. Take up your cross and carry it to the place of execution. That's what it's talking about. That to take up one's cross means a willingness to die. And he goes on to explain that's exactly what he meant. Because in verse 25 he said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But anyone or whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, having seen now where he was going with his statements about death, perhaps we can better understand why Jesus spoke of death having no power over his church. He wanted his disciples to understand that in light of the strong possibility that they would face death as martyrs through persecution, that they would ultimately be resurrected because the gates of Hades would never permanently conquer them and hold them down as captives. Now that, folks, is an incredibly comforting truth for all of us as believers to embrace, though death will come. And in in this context, it appears that Jesus was referring to death due to persecution, although it certainly comes in other ways. We need never fear dying because he promises to raise us up from the dead. Although the devil may and, and will orchestrate all kinds of attacks against God's people, and sometimes those attacks will result in our death, Satan and death will not be able to keep a believer in the grave. We will be raised from the dead to be with our Lord. Now, the question is, how can that be? How can Jesus make such a bold promise that every believer, meaning his church, will conquer death and experience resurrection? Obviously, it means that this is not an itinerant human rabbi saying this. Obviously, this has to be deity. He indeed is the Messiah, the son of the living God, to make a pronouncement like this. This is not a traveling Galilean rabbi. How did he make this this statement? How could this possibly be? Well, it's really very simple. Christ's death on the cross conquered sin. It also conquered death. But it conquered sin in the sense that his death on the cross fully paid the penalty for the sins of his people. So that God's wrath, note this, was completely satisfied. That is the heart of the gospel. God's holy wrath, his just wrath, was completely satisfied by the death of his son. His son who had no sin on his record, and we who have all kinds of sins on our records. God's wrath was completely satisfied because Christ fully and completely paid the penalty for the sins of his people. So now he is able then to fully forgive those who come to him for salvation because he has maintained his justice Sin has been dealt with in a just manner, dealt with by the death of his son. But he's also merciful, and in his mercy offers salvation to all who will come. None of his attributes are compromised. Justice is intact. Mercy is intact. Therefore, because sin no longer condemns a believer before God, since it was completely paid for, God will raise a Christian from the grave to be in his presence. Because only forgiven, declared righteous sinners can be in his presence. See, Jesus said in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. He said in John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me 
will live even if he dies. And we do die. See, folks, that is precisely, precisely what Jesus is talking about in his promise concerning the church in Matthew 16. Though believers will physically die, some through natural causes, but some at the hand of Satan and persecution. Remember, church is not simply the church in America. We're talking about throughout the years and all over the globe. Many die through persecution. The gates of Hades, though, are not powerful enough to keep them in prison. We will rise from the dead. That's an incredibly significant promise and one that everybody ought to seriously consider because we're all going to die someday, aren't we? All of us. And then what? What happens when we die? What happens at the end of our lives? That's obviously a significant thing to think about. Notice what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16 about the future. Notice verse 24 of Matthew 16. Let me read this again, and you'll see in context and flow where he's going. The, The logic of our Lord, the reasonableness of our Lord. He says in verse 24, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's talking about discipleship. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man? Here's his logic. Here's where he's going with this. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will, it, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Now our Lord is asking this penetrating question. What good will it do you if after you have gained all kinds of material wealth and honor in this world, what will it benefit you if at the end of your days on earth you lose your own soul forever? The obvious answer is it doesn't mean anything. You've got maybe 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 years. You've got a a little window of opportunity in this world to trust Christ What will it benefit you if you gain everything else but not him? Because then you die and it's over. You don't have an opportunity to accept him after death. This is the most serious matter in life. Because Jesus said eventually he's coming back to return to this earth to deal, he said, in judgment with those who never became his disciples, those who never took up their cross and willingly followed him. So if you die in your sins, meaning you never trusted him, it's too late. You will eternally experience the power of death and will never be raised in the Lord's presence because your sins weren't forgiven. You will be raised at the end of the days, but only to be sentenced to the lake of fire. That's what Revelation 20 is talking about. And so I urge you, if you've never trusted Christ, come to him for salvation before it's too late. The writer to the Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. You don't have another opportunity after death. Now that is the primary meaning of Christ's words. The gates of Hades will not overpower those called to be his followers because we will rise from the dead. Wow, what a great promise. Death could not contain Jesus, nor will he allow it to contain us. 
You've been listening to Verse by Verse, and our topic these days is the nature of the church. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our study teacher as we look at Scripture a verse at a time on these daily Bible studies. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, where he's been serving since 1981. Verse by Verse is just one of Lakeside's ministries. Another one that I just have time to mention is their excellent school, where students not only receive solid academic training, they are also exposed to a biblical worldview. Find out more about Lakeside and Lakeside's associated ministries at lakesidechapel.com. You can also link to the Verse by Verse website from there, or just go directly to versebyverseradio.org. You'll find hundreds of previous broadcasts on our message archive page, as well as information about our beliefs and how you can help fund these broadcasts if the Lord is leading you that way. Once more, that's versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. The church has been under attack by Satan ever since Jesus first mentioned it back there in Matthew 16. In fact, the first thing Peter did after his wonderful conversation with Jesus was to spout the very words of Satan in proclaiming that Jesus would never go to the cross. Ever since, the enemy of our souls has been out to get us and to bring down the church either from within or without.